0: Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Programme. Shortly, we will be bringing you another of our splendid slumber time stories, which this week is a bit of a whodunit and a how did they do it? It says here. But first we have the last in our series of old Albion folk songs which have been collated by the venerable Dame Hildebrand Dilemma Spaniels. Now last week there was an unfortunate mix-up with the tracks and we played you something that should never have gone out on air. So it's with some relief and great happiness that I can tell you that this week's track is a lovely little number. It's the first of this recorded series to feature both a male voice and harmony vocals, and as such is particularly special. We really have enjoyed bringing you these culturally significant recordings, and I'm sure your anticipation is high for this week's offering. So, dear listener, lean back, close your eyes, And let the sounds of yesteryear ooze all over you. As we present for you another folk song of Old Albion. Introduced for this final time by Dame Dilemma Spaniels herself. Do you know anything else? Yeah, I've got one. I'll give it a go. Do it. Join in. I don't care. Just sing it. My wife, Doris, my wife, Doris. Everybody's had her, including Father Smell! My wife, Doris, my wife, Doris, everybody's had a for tea. Sing along. My wife, Doris, my wife, Doris. Everybody's had her, including Reverend Fudge. My wife, Doris, my wife, Doris. Everybody's had a rub for tea. Mrs Mulligan. My wife, My wife Doris. Doris. My wife Doris. Everybody's had a, including yeah. Mrs G. Yeah. My, wife, yeah. My wife Doris. My wife Doris. Everybody's I'm had a, a rum for tea. tea. I have a banana. <laughs> Mrs Mulligan. Two, three. Uh, uh. My, My, wife, yeah. My wife Doris. My wife Doris. Desist everybody. immediately, you disgust worm-ridden peasant. I'm not a peasant. I'm the mayor. Don't come any closer. I have a gun and I will shoot you. Well, that was certainly memorable. I should be humming that for weeks and the mental picture that it conjures up, well, it's certainly vivid. Now, next week, we are excited to introduce a new feature called Musings of the Moment with some very eminent guest speakers. But now on The Light Programme, it's time once again for Slumber Time Stories. And this week, it's a crime drama, read by yours truly, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb Part One of Lost in the Great White by Darren Callum Well, that's a very rum-do, muttered the PM as he the Homeland Defense and Attack Secretary, the Right Honourable Arthur Coward, and the King's butler, Ms. Chuffingwell-Happy, stood and stared through a three-foot round hole in the ceiling of the King's favourite bedchamber and out to the blue sky and lazily drifting clouds beyond. They continued to stare for a moment or two longer before the PM who felt somewhat uncomfortable amongst so much regal finery, scandalously, the PM was a Republican, could think of nothing better to add than, Very rum, indeed. Somewhat baffled, he finally turned his gaze from the gaping aperture to survey the scene of rubble, sawdust, and general disarray that lay around them. And you say that the king was, um... Removed through this very chasm last night. Coward nodded sheepishly, and continued to stare at the hole lest he catch the PM's eye. Miss Chuffingwell Happy formed a barely discernible scowl, and tut tutted very disapprovingly. Well, in all my days, I'm not sure I've ever beheld anything quite so wrong. When did you say your man, uh, the admiral? was getting here to look into all of this. A man? Coughed Coward under his breath. Not sure I ever mentioned anything about a man. Before the PM could interrogate him further on the subject, there was a jovial rap on the well upholstered oak door and a rotund and equally jovial looking police constable entered with a cheery, What ho all? It was a day when the PM's demeanour was to be in a constant state of being taken aback, and he was beginning to get a little bored of it. Admiral Sherman?' inquired the PM, extremely sceptically. "'Oh, no, 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 no,' no," laughed the constable, his cheeks growing rosier by the minute. "'I'm not the Admiral, oh, dearie me, no!' Nothing much was going to surprise the PM now, but before he could utter so much as a who the devil is then, there was a snuffling around the door and what appeared to be a large sheepdog wolf cross with a shaggy brown coat and a very smart blue waistcoat replete with gold Metropolis police badge bustled into the room and began some earnest sniffing amongst the dusty trappings of the bedroom. "'That's the admiral, dear boy!' beamed the policeman, and Julie plonked himself down on the king's very bed. At the sound of her name, the dog paused briefly and raised one hairy eyebrow at the PM before continuing to sniff excitedly. The PM glared accusingly at his secretary. "'I do hope this isn't some sort of a joke, coward. "'That's not a detective!' It's a blinking mutt. Before Coward could even begin to formulate the first syllable of his reply, the dog turned and snarled angrily, not insubstantial teeth bared at the PM, who went quite white around the gills. Oh, I wouldn't call her that if I were you, chortled the constable, quite beside himself with mirth. Oh, no, 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 no. She prefers Admiral Sherman or Regina to her friends. A uh, uh, Good dog, uh, uh, Admiral, squeaked the PM. And somewhat placated, the dog resumed her sniffing, moving now towards the fireplace. The defence secretary suddenly found his voice as, chuffing happy, continued to scowl in such a way as to suggest she was very unimpressed with the whole carry-on. I know it's a little queer, uh, but the admiral is the best operative we have. Uh, She'll get to the bottom of this carry-on, and no mistake. Well, I blasted well hope so, muttered the PM, looking around for someone not too dusty to park his posterior. Finally spying a reasonably sturdy-looking chair, he duly sat. Tell me, Constable, why is she called the Admiral? Oh, 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 well, that was her idea, that, guffawed the Constable. You know, it seems they aren't too keen on giving ranks to animals in a constabulary, (laughs) even though she's our most decorated operator. Mm -mm. So she renamed herself Admiral, so she outranks us all. Oh, it does make me laugh. With this, the constable proceeded to do exactly that, with great bellowing guffaws, which caused the defence secretary to stifle a chortle under his breath. Even the PM was finding it a little hard not to chuckle. Mrs. C. H., however, could not have looked any sterner. Right, right, offered the PM. "'raising an arm to instill some calm on the situation. "'Miss Chuffingwell, I I think perhaps tea and bickies for everyone, "'and for the benefit of...' He glanced at the dog, still busy at her snuffling investigations. "Uh, "'The Admiral, uh, perhaps you could just recap "'on our understanding of events to date?' This last was aimed at the defence secretary, who Julie obliged.' as Miss C.H., still looking distinctly not best pleased with the situation, spoke into an electric speaking tube near the bed to order the aforementioned refreshments. Taking a place center stage, the secretary began to recount the tale of how the butler had knocked thrice on the royal bedchamber door this very morning before deciding it best to arouse the king from his slumbers, only to find a deficit of kings and a surfeit of clodding great holes in the ceiling. The only conclusion offering itself was that one had been removed through t'other, but the whys and wherefores of the situation were yet to be ascertained with any degree of clarity or indeed at all. With this final pronouncement, Admiral the dog was heard to tut and shake her head slightly. Before the PM could venture his tuppence apenny on the subject, a train's whistle, followed by a whirring and clanking sound, interrupted their flow. Then, on a hitherto unnoticed miniature railway track that entered from a hole in the wall, appeared a tiny steam-powered locomotive, towing behind it a tender stacked with bourbons and Four cups of steaming beverage in white porcelain train-carriage-shaped cups. "'Well, I never,' muttered the PM, rubbing his hands at the thought of a decent brew. However, a loud bark from the Admiral brought him back to the present with a start. "'Oh, ho, 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 ho! What have we here?' bellowed the still as yet unintroduced constable, jumping up in a sprightly manner that belied his size and moving to the middle of the room, where the admiral was tapping urgently with one paw. As all looked on, and the PM gave only half a glance to his now cooling cup of tea, the constable knelt down and delicately pulled a small white flower from amongst the scattered debris. Well, all my days, what have you found here, girl? Admiral sat herself down on her haunches, looking really rather pleased with herself, if such a thing were possible in a hound. If I may, ventured the defence and attack secretary, reaching for his spectacles, I am no great expert, but uh, I do consider myself something of an amateur horticulturist. He studied the flower carefully as Ms. C.H. finally distributed the cups of tea, including pouring one into a bowl produced by the constable that the admiral lapped at noisily. "'Well, I do believe it's a lesser-spotted diamond edelweiss offered the secretary. And with this, the admiral paused slurping briefly and appeared somewhat impressed at the diagnosis.' And this is certainly a great breakthrough for us, as these flowers are only found in one part of the world. All looked on expectantly. However, despite taking a large inward breath in anticipation of a great pronouncement, it gradually became apparent that the secretary was perhaps struggling to recall the exact origin of the specimen. And where would that be? inquired the PM, hoping to chivvy things along as the secretary was starting to turn puce. Finally, to the relief of all, he exhaled, uttering breathlessly, the Crested Mountains. He seemed very pleased with himself. However, this did not go down so well with the Admiral, who buried her head in her paws. The constable, who was looking only to the dog's reaction, chipped in. Not sure the Admiral is with you on that, Your Holiness. <laughs> Care to have another stab? Eh? What? R- really? muttered the Secretary, quite taken aback, mostly at having been caught out with a rather wild guess. Eh? Uh, uh, no, perhaps not. Uh, then maybe the uh, Gaulish Riviera? he offered. But this was greeted only by more head-burying and an impatient growl from the hound. No, no, not there, your worshipfulness. Have another crack, chuckled the constable. What, really? Oh, I don't know. He looked to the PM for help, but help there came none as the PM concentrated on his cuppa. Uh, um, uh, Cloud Island then? "'tried the secretary one more time "'and was relieved to see the admiral nodded her head "'and returned noisily to her bowl of tea. Oh, splendid work all,' said the PM, "'sounding really rather amused with proceedings. <laughs> "'Then we'll have to start our investigations there, "'by all accounts.' "'A nod of approval to admiral "'was followed by an inquisitive look at the secretary. "'Now, Cloud Island,' That's one of the colonies, isn't it? Who's our chap on the ground there? Well, now, began the secretary, relieved to be returning to an area where his knowledge was such he was unlikely to be overruled by a dog. It was Carruthers Simpleton, uh, but we've not heard a peep from him in yonks. Jungle drums are hinting that he may have gone native. The plot thickens, muttered the PM. I assume we've already taken action. Indeed, indeed, a gunboat has been dispatched, but it's had to wait for the southern approaches to thaw before it can get anywhere near the capital. Inconvenient, summed up the PM. Then we must have an agent or two in the area. Two of our best were alerted by a rocket-propelled pigeon, only last week. "'Then they are the only game in town. "'Be so good as to fire off another pigeon or two, "'and uh, let's see where that gets us. "'It will be done forthwith.' "'And with that, Coward drained his tea and set forth. "'The PM and the Admiral raised an eyebrow at each other "'in mutual recognition that this case was a long way from being solved. "'Nevertheless, the PM was moved to mutter a good girl.' under his breath, raising his carriage-shaped cup in a simple salute to the hound. Jolly well done. About a week later, Carruthers Simpleton rolled over on his side and gazed drunkenly out through the large window at the bottom of his cabin wall across the strange, eerily lit land that was his current pied-à-terre he took a deep suck on his hot fermented millet drink through its bamboo straw, idly playing with his pencil moustache and chuckling to himself at how cushy his number had become. Ever since that creepy snook chap had arrived and offered him twice his normal civil service salary to cut communications with those pompous twits in the metropolis, whilst simultaneously turning a blind eye to the Cummings and indeed goings on the north side of the island his prospects had improved immensely at some point there was almost certain to be a great reckoning but with the southern passages currently frozen solid that time was some way off arriving cloud island was certainly a weird and wonderful place to be marooned in point of fact It was actually an old, hopefully dormant, volcano with a large flat top that was surrounded six months of the year by ice and had some peculiar cloud formations that gave it both its name and its peculiar ambience. The most common of these events was a thick, low cloud that would drift across the top of the mountain about four feet off the ground. This would have the curious effect of hiding everyone's heads as they carried out their business and encouraged the locals to build windows at ground level to allow them to at least observe the headless body scurrying this way and that. It was through one of these low level apertures that Carruthers Simpleton now gazed out from his bedroll at the rather fetching lower reaches of a pleasingly buxom milkmaid in a low-cut peasant dress, now striding her way approximately in his direction. A wooden yoke across her barely visible shoulders, carrying a splashing milk pail on a rope on either side, caught his attention also. It was nearly midday, and perhaps a cool drink of milk and a Who knew what else this lovely two-thirds of a woman might be prepared to offer him uh, would be just the ticket. He pushed open the wooden-framed window and called out in a somewhat slurry voice. Well, hello, my good lady. Could you spare me a glass of your fresh milk? The woman turned without hesitation and strode purposefully and "'somewhat robustly in his direction. What my pleasure, good sir,' "'came a rather gruff and low-sounding voice, "'not entirely what he was expecting, "'but uh, she seemed keen enough. "'He loosened the cord of his dressing-gown "'as he was yet to make it from his bed-roll this morning "'and allowed it to slip open just a little. "'Despite the fact that he had gone considerably to seed "'in his three years on the island,' "'Simpleton still considered himself quite a catch "'in this land of hard-toiling peasant farmers. "'Come to the door, and I'll give you something for your trouble.' "'Do right, I will,' thought the island governor to himself "'as he kicked open the rickety wooden door with his foot. "'A little of the island's low cloud drifted into the room "'as the bulky form of the woman approached.' "'I wonder what this delightful apparition looks like,' wondered Simpleton to himself. "'Doesn't really matter too much after two millet beers,' he mused, slurping up the last dregs. "'With great anticipation, he stretched himself out on the yak fur coverings "'whilst the woman made her way around the side, "'and her body, somewhat larger than expected, suddenly filled the doorway. Yoke, milk pails and all.' head, as yet, still not visible. Come in, dear, so I might gaze upon your visage, entreated Simpleton, feeling really rather drunk. He gazed up and gave a gasp of horror as through the swirling whiteness at the top of the door came first a large brass pistol barrel, followed in timely fashion by the burly arms and grizzled face of a rather large man wearing a broad-rimmed black hat. The rest of the outfit turned out to be a rather well-crafted disguise, replete with fake arms attached to the pails and an entirely false bosom over which the arms and grizzled features of Tobias Fitch now loomed down towards the cowering simpleton who was now trying desperately to pull his barely adequate dressing gown around his otherwise naked body. "'Got you, you little rat,' growled Fitch, jabbing the pistol towards him as he crashed into the hut, looking faintly ridiculous in his two-thirds-of-a-milkmaid disguise. "'Eek!' was all that Simpleton could offer in reply. Fitch began to peel off the bizarre costume with one burly arm, whilst all the while keeping his large revolver pointed at Simpleton's nose. After a brief struggle, the outfit was off, and Fitch stood in all his glory dressed in a long black coat that had been hidden underneath. The only odd thing being that the bottom half of his legs were still in character, as it were, resplendent in thick tights and peasant girl fur booties. I don't suppose you know anything about the disappearance of the king's person now, do you? I might be able to help you with that, droned a curiously monotonous voice that emanated from the rat-like features of a rather creepy-looking man who had appeared silently from behind a partition at the rear of the hut. Fitch scowled, but he did not move as he noticed the malevolent figure had a small but lethal-enough-looking 5 barreled pistol, trained between his eyes. Fitch cursed himself inwardly for not having been more on the ball, but he'd been so concerned with getting the drop on Simpleton that he'd forgotten to look out for accomplices. He continued to train his own gun on the cowering man while he kept his eyes fixed on the newcomer. "'And who might you be when you're at home?' growled Fitch, with barely disguised annoyance. "'Snook,' drawled Snook, in really the most boring-sounding tones that Fitch had ever had the misfortune to clap ears upon. "'Rhenish Snook is the name, and you are somewhat earlier than I would have thought possible. Uh, "'But never mind.' I have your King Billy boy incarcerated nearby. With these words, and not a syllable more, Snook then ducked back behind the partition. With the barest flicker of movement, Fitch adjusted his pistol and fired three horrifically loud shots at the general area where Snook should have been, blasting great holes in the bamboo and reed screen and filling the little hut with acrid smoke. Too slow came the familiar dull tones from behind Fitch, and he felt the cold metal of the pistol pushed into his neck. Be so kind as to drop your weapon, drawled Snook. Fitch had no option but to comply though his brain was now churning on how this rodent-like creature had been able to move so swiftly. Maybe the thin mountain air was getting to him. "'Make yourself useful, Governor, and disarm this gentleman,' sneered Snook in the vague direction of Carruthers' simpleton, who was shivering in his barely adequate dressing-gown. But having been sobered up considerably by the goings-on, He shuffled to comply. Some five minutes later, with Fitch relieved of his coat and hat, and with a small pile of weapons, including pistols, knives, blowpipes, and other paraphernalia, crudely piled in the middle of the room, the disarming was deemed to have been probably completed. In any case, time was getting on, and with barely a nod to the pathetic form of the governor, Snook beckoned that Fitch should move outside into the low cloud. And so the two odd, headless figures made their way across the village. Fitch now in only his undershirt and shorts, milkmaid's tights and booties. Snook in his dull grey trench coat and equally uninteresting grey shoes. Brass pistol to the fore, urging his prisoner onwards. After a few minutes trudging, the gravel path gave way to a crude rope bridge and Fitch made his way somewhat uneasily onto this contraption. The the whole affair was shaking and wobbling so much that Fitch nearly lost his footing once or twice. It soon became apparent that although one side of the bridge was secured on the mountain, the other was attached to something a lot less stable. Fitch's suspicions were confirmed as the bridge finally led onto a wooden and iron gangway that appeared to stretch off into the clouds with a large canvas envelope bobbing gently on either side of them. It was most likely they were now on the top surface of a colossal airship-type contraption moored in the clouds alongside the cliff face. Surely, it was so big that Fitch could not make out the extent of it in any direction, as its off-white bulk merged into the low cloud billowing all around them. Here and there, similar gangways stretched out at right angles to their pathway, and the occasional vent or mechanical artifact could be glimpsed. But nothing made a sound, and Fitch could only guess at their utility. A few steps further, and Fitch began to make out another figure in grey, standing near a dark hatch in the superstructure. As he got closer, he realised that the verminous features looked rather familiar, and he could no longer hear footsteps on the planks behind him. With with horror, he realised that Snook was no longer behind him, but standing, pistol in hand, in front of him gesturing languidly for Fitch to descend into the body of the airship. Fitch's brain could hardly begin to surmise how Snook was managing his mysterious vanishing tricks before he was forced to descend an iron ladder into the ship. The heavy hatch was slammed shut and many bolts were thrown, leading Fitch to immediately discard any thoughts of making good an escape that way. Instead, he continued to descend until his foot failed to find a rung at the bottom of the ladder, and he realized it had terminated above a simple hole in the canvas, below which was who knew what. Hello below, he called out, as much to see if his voice echoed back off any solid surface, but was surprised instead to hear a reply. What, hell, old thing, came the unmistakably chirpy tones of King William the 11th of that name. Without hesitation, Fitch let go of the ladder and dropped rapidly into the light below. To his great relief, he hit relatively soft airship canvas after a drop of only 10 feet or so. Taking in his surroundings, Fitch found himself in a room that was canvas on all sides but two. Ahead of him, through narrow iron bars, was the rather bizarre visage of the King of New Albion, sitting in his monogrammed pyjamas, nightgown and nightcap, cross-legged on the gently bobbing floor, grinning from ear to ear. "'What, oh, old thing?' chirped King Billy the Eleventh again. Looking for me by any chance? Before Fitch could offer anything in return, the king cryptically put his finger to his lips and then pointed over Fitch's shoulder. Finding his feet slowly on the floor, which was about as steady as a trampoline isn't, Fitch slowly rotated about himself to look towards the other side of the canvas room where, (gasps) with a slight start, he realized another, smaller figure was sitting, looking at him, inscrutably. This person turned out to be a young, nimble-looking woman of vaguely oriental appearance. Black hair, neatly pulled back in a ponytail. She was clad in an impressive royal blue, eastern-style jacket and black acrobats' leggings and pumps. She tipped her head slightly in greeting, but said nothing. Her muscular but calm demeanour suggested some sort of training, and Fitch assumed she must be another agent, perhaps from the Sino-Chinese empire. Not an ally as such, but perhaps not an enemy either. Since it was unlikely she spoke any English, he tipped a salute instead. The woman gave a slight frown, and then with two fingers of one hand, pointed first to her eyes, and then to Fitch's somewhat unsteady legs. He glanced down, uh, only then remembering the milkmaid disguise still adorning his lower half. He couldn't immediately think of the international sign language for a it's a long story, so he just shrugged in the most non-committal way he could muster. Before further wordless confusion could be engaged in, there came a juddering in the airship, and without warning, the canvas floor gave way, and Fitch and the woman were both sent tumbling into a narrow fabric tunnel. "'Cheerio, then, old fruit!' offered the king by way of goodbye. Since he was tumbling headfirst, Fitch was first relieved that the tube was not very long, then pretty much immediately annoyed as buggery that the fall was terminated by him cracking his head on a hard iron disc. He barely had time to mutter half an oath before the woman landed on him with a thump, and then the floor began to descend, and they were both forced to hold on to a cold iron pipe, which was all there was between them, the elements, and a drop of unknown depth below them. The apparatus to which they were both now desperately clinging was, in fact, a pair of three-foot-wide iron discs connected by a six-inch diameter solid metal pipe. Above that, unseen cables and pulleys were dropping them rapidly to the surface, where they suddenly stopped with an unseemly thump, tossing them both out onto the unyielding ice. Fitch rubbed his sore head and waited as the swirling stars slowly gave way to the sheer whiteness of their surroundings. In every direction he could make out only white fog or ice, with not a feature to be seen, with the exception of the Oriental Lady and the great contraption they had descended on. This now turned out to be a great iron-toothed circular drill, above which was the pipe they had held onto, and above that a platform on which stood Snook, brass pistol still in one hand, the other holding a strap attached to the cables that disappeared into the clouds barely a foot above his head. Despite his slightly concussed state, Fitch was beginning to understand how this very apparatus might have been used to snatch the king from his bedroom a week before. Eight feet up in the air on the platform, Snook waved his pistol little more than not at all. I would stay and chat, but I really must be off now. I have plans for the king, you see. He's a really lovely bait in my rather wonderfully contrived trap he paused for half a breath to the south are the sheer cliffs of cloud island to your north is the arctic circle don't say i didn't offer you any help he smirked merely a fraction and without so much as a wave clicked a relay by his left hand, and with barely a whisper, the great iron drill began to ascend back up into the clouds. Realising his backside was getting a bit cold on the ice, Fitch tried to stand. The woman moved quickly, and with surprising strength to help him up, and he gave a reassuring thumbs-up in thanks. She responded in kind, and then circled her finger to ask what direction they thought they ought to move, since staying still seemed not an option. He shrugged somewhat forlornly, realising he could see only white in all directions, and the light was probably starting to fade a little. Still, any direction was better than none, so he picked one and began to trudge that way with heavy feet still feeling somewhat dazed. He was just beginning to find some speed and adjust his booty-clad feet to the icy conditions below when he walked with force and an almighty metallic crash into something solid iron and as unrelentingly white as the clouds and ice around them. Oh, what the buggering hell now! he muttered disconsolately, before slipping rapidly and with some relief into unconsciousness. What will befall our two heroes lost in the vast arctic expanses? Will the king be saved? And what on earth did fish just walk into? Find out next week as we bring you another installment of Slumber Time Stories. For now, this is Theodore pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Albion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All stories, voices and characters created by and copyright to Darren Kelly. The part of Hildebrand's Dilemma Spaniels was played by Emma King. All music by Charlotte Savikar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production. Albion Radiophonic Corporation.